Georgia high school student Katie Hetzel was studying for her world literature class a few weeks ago. Um, she was doing some research on vocabulary.com uh, on a certain word that she needed to know more about, and she clicked the audio on that word to see uh, what it sounded like, and she was surprised that she didn't hear the word that she thought she was hearing on vocabulary.com that she thought she should be hearing. So she went on Instagram, put up a poll for her friends. What word are you hearing when you hear this audio clip? Uh, Yanny or Laurel? Um, and pretty soon it was going viral on the internet. Let's, I think we have the clip here, so uh, let's play it if we can. See what you hear. Laurel. Laurel, 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 Laurel. All right, that's good. Um, so you've been hearing that for the last couple of weeks. Many of you are sick of it. Who uh, is Team Yanny? Who hears Yanny when they hear that? Okay, who hears Laurel? All right, yeah, pretty split. So um, you've probably seen that Vocabulary.com has weighed in on the issue, and there actually is a right answer. There was actually a human voice that they recorded, an opera singer, and he was actually saying the word Laurel. Um, there's just some frequency science things that I didn't really understand that make some people hear Yanny instead of Laurel when that sound is coming through. And I was thinking, you know, as Christians, there um, is an analogy in there for us. Um, in terms of how we relate to people who don't believe what we believe. So sometimes we're saying Laurel and we, the world is hearing Yanny and we get frustrated and so we just yell Laurel louder and get frustrated because they keep just hearing a louder and louder Yanny, right? Um, and we realize that it doesn't really matter if we're saying Laurel, if everybody's hearing us say Yanny in a sense. So hang with me for a second. I'm going to make a connection to what we're doing here. So Paul, the apostle, was a Jewish man, raised thoroughly Jewish. Um, but when he came to put his faith in Jesus as his Messiah, and when God made him a missionary to the world, God sent him to places like this, the city of Athens. Um, cities that couldn't be more unlike his Jewish culture in which he grew up um, at all. So many of you, some of you, have probably been to Athens or to a city like it. You know that on every street corner there's a temple worshiping pagan gods. There's um, artwork, um, statues that Paul would have seen everywhere of naked people. This couldn't have been more different from Paul's Jewish upbringing, right? But here's the thing about Paul. He knew that he couldn't step into a place like Athens and just preach the gospel in the same way that he would to his Jewish brothers and sisters in a place like Jerusalem, right? If he was going to be able to communicate to these people, he was going to need to change the way in which he shared the gospel. Otherwise, he'd be saying Laurel and they'd just be hearing Yanny, and there wouldn't be anything he could do about it. So, that's exactly what Paul does, and that's what we're going to see, that his approach in this text today in Acts chapter 17. Would you turn there with me to Acts chapter 17? should be somewhere around page 926 in the Bible in the seat in front of you. Um, we're working our way through the book of Acts. This 
passage today is the second of three extended speeches by Paul in the book of Acts. And it seems like Luke, the writer, includes this one in the book of Acts so that we can see Paul's approach to this speech he gives in Athens and so that we can see the reaction of the people to that speech. Um, So what we're going to focus our time on today is how Paul structures this um, presentation of the gospel to these people in Athens and see what we can take away from it as people who are living on the North Shore in 2018. Um, So follow with me as I read, starting in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy, at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. The big idea from that text, we'll look at it at the outset, is speak truth about God in the language of the culture. That's what Paul does in Athens. He's not from Athens. He couldn't be from a place that was more different from Athens. But yet, he speaks the truth about God in the language of the Athenians, the people he's speaking to. It's a valuable model for us, I think, in our day and age where we find ourselves today. So I want to point out today five ways 
in which Paul does this, speaks truth about God in the language of the culture, and I'm going to word them as directives to us on the North Shore in 2018. So here's the first one. First one comes from how Paul lived before he ever showed up in Athens, and it's this. Learn the Bible well enough that you can learn to see everything else through it. Learn the Bible well enough that you can see everything else through it. I'm thinking of verse 16 in our text, right off the bat at the beginning. If you noticed, Paul's initial impression in Athens was not a positive one, actually. It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. But what would make a visitor to one of the world's great cities feel distressed? I mean, speaking of great cities, I I did a wedding in Chicago this weekend, and I felt this weekend the same way that I feel pretty much every time I go into the city. I don't know if some of you feel the same way. I feel like a rush of adrenaline as I'm driving in, as long as I'm not stopped in traffic, right? I feel like where I'm around all these tall buildings, all these people, things are happening. Like, this is a really important place. I feel energized and invigorated by the city, right? Many of us have been on the architecture tour downtown, and we've marveled at human achievement of these buildings that were built in certain ways to fit the streets and uh, everything else. So why am I impressed by the city while Paul was distressed by the city? That's the question. I think there's one main answer, and it's this, that Paul's worldview was thoroughly saturated by the Bible in a way that mine isn't. In other words, when I look at the Parthenon in Athens, I see majesty. When Paul looked at it, he saw the captivity of the people who were under a delusion there. When I look at artwork from ancient Greece, I'm impressed by it. When Paul looks at it, he's grieved because of the gods and goddesses that are being represented in worship in that artwork. When I go to a place like Athens, never been there, but if I did, I'd want to take pictures of myself to uh, post somewhere so that uh, my status could be elevated. But when Paul goes to Athens, he's heartbroken for the people there and that they've been greatly deceived. I think the difference between Paul's attitude and mine is primarily based on the inputs that are coming in. Paul's so saturated in the law, the prophets, the writings, his Bible, that he can't help but see the world through God's eyes. I'm so saturated in music, movies, entertainment of the culture around us and the gods of this age that I don't even notice when I go into the city the gods and idols that are all around me. I am impressed instead. You know, more could be said about how Paul does this. How this passage even in verses 24 through 31, he shows the big story of Scripture so masterfully and ties together certain links in the story and makes sense of the whole trajectory of Scripture. Um, But the question I want to ask us is just this. What role does the Bible play in shaping our worldview? Like, is the Bible just an accessory that you and I carry around, or is it so embedded in our heart that it shapes the way we see everything in the world? Another way of asking it might be this. Is the Bible like a picture on our wall that we go and look at and admire from time to time? Or is the Bible like the window on our wall through which we see the world outside? For Paul, the Bible was embedded in his heart in such a way that he couldn't help but see the world the way God sees it. It was his 
window to the world. And that's what enabled his heart for Athens to be aligned with God's heart for Athens. We're going to spend most of today talking about exegeting the culture. That's a fancy word, exegete, that just means to read correctly and interpret correctly. Uh, We want to interpret our culture correctly. However, at the outset, in this first point, I just want to make sure it's clear that if we haven't exegeted the Scripture, it doesn't do any good to exegete the culture. Because the conclusions that we draw about the culture um, won't be any good if the Bible isn't the window through which we see the culture for what it is. I'm not sure, standing here today, that our church, uh, that as a church we've learned the Bible well enough that we see everything else through it. We've had a reputation here at Norsev of being that sort of a church, a Bible-oriented, Bible-saturated church. And I think that's probably been true of us from time to time in our church's history. Um, but having been here now two years, I can't stand here and say that is still necessarily true of us from my experience being here. Uh, and I'm not singling out Norsev. I don't think we're alone in this regard. It's just the reality that a generation or two or three ago... You wouldn't call yourself a committed churchgoer unless you went to church to hear the Word of God three or four times a week. Nowadays, you're a committed churchgoer if you show up three times a month, right? That's just the world that we're living in, so we're not alone in that regard. But the result of that is that we are a people who are increasingly starved for the Word of God. We are a people who increasingly are going to have a hard time having an attitude toward the culture that matches God's attitude for the culture because we're not thoroughly saturated in his way of seeing the world. The good news is that's a fixable problem. Um, It's able to be fixed. Um, It will require work. Maybe some time that we would have spent reading the news, now we get in the word. Maybe some time that we would have spent watching Netflix, we read some articles or books that help us understand the word of God. Uh, There's no shortcut to embedding this in our hearts and using it as a window through which we see the world. Um, But I can't think of anything worthwhile as a use of our time. So number one, learn the Bible well enough so you can see everything else through it. Number two, um, learn the culture well enough that you can express their beliefs better than they can. Learn the culture well enough that you can express their beliefs better than they can. I'm thinking about all the pre-work that Paul does before he gives this speech. Did you notice? In verse 16, he's taking in everything that's happening around him. In verse 23, he talks about how he was passing along and observing objects of worship. Back in verse 17, he's having these discussions in the synagogue and in the marketplace. In verse 22, he's taking all the data he's gathered and analyzing it and synthesizing it to draw conclusions about the culture. In verse 28, we even see that he knows the culture well enough to quote their own, prophet, their own poets. When you've done all that work to get to know the culture around you and you're saturated in this Bible, you become the sort of person who, well, there's a sense in which you can know people better than they know themselves. Now, here's what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that Paul was able to articulate the ins and outs of Epicurean philosophy better than the Epicurean philosophers could. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that Paul is able to have some insights into Epicurean philosophy that not even the Epicurean philosophers have. And the reason for that 
um, is because he can see inconsistencies, see implications that they've never realized because he's not just another smart person getting up and speaking. He's somebody who has living in his heart the living word of God. And this word, friends, has the ability to penetrate to the deepest part of our bones. It has the ability to lay our hearts bare on the table and show what's there, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It has the ability to penetrate any worldview, any culture, any religious outlook, and expose it to be what it is. When Paul has that living in his heart, and if any of us have that living in our hearts, we have the ability, we have something to say to any culture on earth. So the question here for us on the second point is how well do we know our friends, our neighbors, our family members, our co-workers? Do we know, like beyond a surface level, below a surface level, do we know what they really, really hope for? Do we know what they object to? Do we know what their fears are? Do we know what they believe? Do we know them in any way better than themselves? Have we done the work to get to that point where that is in some sense true? Are we answering the questions that they're actually asking? For some of us, the answer to that might be no this morning. Um, And maybe for some of you, it's because you don't know where to start in gaining that understanding of those around you, the world around you. A few questions to ask as you're thinking about where to start. You might think, what am I reading? What do I spend my time reading? And are there adjustments I can make to what I read to read some things that will give me more insight into the culture around me? You might ask the question, uh, when I talk to my friends, what are our conversation topics? Are there any adjustments I can make to our conversation topics to be able to go a little bit deeper below the surface to get to know them below a surface level? Uh, We might ask the entertainment I consume. What sort of entertainment is it? Is it mindless? Or could I maybe consume some less mindless entertainment and consume more entertainment that actually raises some of the important questions that the culture is asking? In all of that, we can be asking, am I only in the synagogue talking to religious people, or am I also in the marketplace talking to also some people who are irreligious? There's value in conversation in both places. Um, but those are some questions we can ask as we're getting started. Now, I'd love to model this for a moment and just give a mini cultural exegesis of the North Shore in 2018 as I see it. Um, because of our time, I have written that up. I'm going to put it in the highlights this week that go out on Thursday so that you can read that if you're interested. But more importantly right now, I just want to take our last moment on the second point to ask how. How do we do it? Um, how do we learn the culture well enough that we could maybe even one day express some of their beliefs better than they can? And I think we do it by doing what Paul does here. As we walk around and observe, we look like Paul did, for where the idols are all around us. As we have conversations with people in our lives, as Paul did here, we ask, what are their beliefs, actually? And what beliefs are there that I can connect with? And as Paul did, we look around to see what cultural artifacts or customs exist in my culture, like the Areopagus in Paul's day, that I could make use of for the sake of the gospel and redeem for the purposes of Christ. In all, we're seeking to learn the culture well enough that we can express their beliefs even better than they can in some ways. That's our second point. Our third point is this. Then we challenge others' wrong beliefs on the basis of their right beliefs. Challenge wrong beliefs 
on the basis of right beliefs. This is an insight, a suggestion that comes from a guy named Tim Keller in New York City, a pastor there. Um, he, in my opinion, is one of the foremost thinkers today on the intersection of faith and culture. Um, and he's done it at his church in New York City. They have reached people in a place that is actually very similar to our culture in terms of achievement and uh, it's being secular uh, here in Chicago. So I think we have a lot to learn from what he has to say. But here's how he words it on this point. <clears throat> he talks about A doctrines and B doctrines, A and B doctrines. And he's not differentiating based on importance, like A doctrines are essential and B doctrines are non-essential. That's not what he's talking about in this case. He's talking about A doctrines are those teachings of Christianity that we believe and that the culture around us also affirms. So um, there's no disagreement there. The culture around us happens to affirm things that we believe as Christians when it's an A doctrine. B doctrines are those beliefs that we hold as Christians that the culture around us finds offensive. Our unbelieving neighbors would be offended by, right? So in every culture, the A and B doctrines are different. Um, And Keller's suggestion is that the model he sees in Acts 17 and elsewhere is that we start with the A doctrines. We start with those points of commonality that we have in the culture around us. And we build some common ground based on what we agree on, what's been revealed to the culture generally um, by God's common grace. And then, and only then, from there, we show how, since God's truth is God's truth, and since it all works together in God's plan, how in order to be consistent, believing A demands that you believe B. So if you really believe A, you should also believe B because B follows from A if you believe A. So by doing so, it's more winsome because we're challenging people's beliefs not based on our own framework, but based on the framework that they themselves already hold. Do you notice in the passage how Paul does this? I'm thinking in particular of verse 28, for example, when he quotes these two poets. The first quote, in him we live and move and have our being, that's from a Greek poet called Epimenides. Uh, it's an A doctrine, right? Epimenides said it, but it affirms what we see in Scripture. The second quote, for we are indeed his offspring, is from a Greek poet called Eratus. It's an A doctrine. It's affirmed by what we see in Scripture. But then Paul can go to the B doctrines by starting with those A doctrines that he has affirmed. And just to do this in two sentences, much more briefly than I would like to, to the Epicureans that Paul's talking to, the Epicureans who believe that the gods don't want anything from us because they're so far away and so disengaged from our experience, Paul says, God's not all that far away. He's actually very engaged in our experiences. So he challenges that belief. And to the Stoics in the audience who believe that the gods and the earth are one and God is everywhere, Paul says, well, God is separate. He's distinct from his creation. He's the Lord over it. They're not one and the same, God and creation. So Paul critiques both philosophies, the Epicureans and the Stoics, on their B doctrines, but he does so by appealing to the A doctrines and the quotes there in verse 28 from their own poets. So we've got a model here of doing it. Um, Some of you have read C.S. Lewis. He was a master at doing just this, taking an A doctrines that the culture affirms and building on them to the B doctrines. Um, But I wonder, and I want to ask the question here on this point, why are we Christians not known generally for this kind of approach? 
Why are we not generally known for being winsome like this and looking for common ground with those around us? I think there are many reasons. I think there are two that I want to address here. One reason I think that maybe we're slow to build common ground as we should and start from there is that we're worried about the culture possibly taking an A doctrine that we all believe and lifting it up to a place it shouldn't be lifted up to or there being an excess in it. So, for example, we're living in a day and age today in which it's cool to be in favor of social justice, right? That will get you pats on the back to be in favor of social justice in our world today, right? So some Christians know that, and they get worried, though, that if I publicly affirm social justice-type things, then the world around me might think it's okay to take those social justice things and make them everything or lift them up to a place where they are the gospel or take them to an extreme level. And so those type of Christians pull back and say, I'm not even going to affirm social justice. I'm not even going to say anything positive about social justice because it might get taken the wrong way. Right? Friends, that's a major error, actually. And Paul could have made that error here. Think about that quote, we are indeed his offspring, right? That's a Greek poet saying that. Paul could have been like, you know what, I'm not going to affirm that quote because people could take that the wrong way. Like, there's some senses in which we're God's offspring. There's other senses in which we aren't. What if they take that to some places and draw some conclusions that I wouldn't have wanted them to draw? I'm just going to stay away from it and not affirm it at all. He doesn't do that. He doesn't try to nitpick. He says, hey, your poet said we are all his offspring. There's a sense in which that's true. I'm going to affirm that and start from that place of common ground and build from there. Um, so that's one way I think that we are, why, one reason why we're hesitant, why we're maybe not known as we should be for building common ground with those around us. Another reason I think is our just tragic misuse of social media. So I was thinking about this as I was soaking in this text over the past couple weeks. What is more like the Areopagus today than our social media feed, right? Think about it. The Areopagus was the place you go in Athens where people are just sitting around listening to different ideas all day, just taking them in, right? And you get a chance of you get your moment in the spotlight where you just get to share and speak whatever you want and you have a captive audience who's going to listen to you and evaluate what you have to say, right? Isn't that exactly what we're doing on a much bigger scale on our social media? But yet, so many of us Christians are failing to take the opportunity as what it is, and instead of using our social media to, in part, affirm some A doctrines that our culture can agree with so that we can build some common ground for future conversations, we spend all our time on social media railing on the culture out there and showing them all the reasons that they're wrong and uh, vilifying them. And then Thanksgiving comes around, and we wonder why Cousin Johnny doesn't want to engage me on faith. Of course, Cousin Johnny doesn't want to engage you on faith. He's been hearing what you think about him all year long, that you think he's a horrible person who believes ever, all the wrong beliefs. Why would he, right? Um, we are a people who have a better way. The better way is to remove unnecessary obstacles to the gospel. Let's be strange. We're going to be strange to the world. There's no avoiding that, but let's... Let the gospel be what makes us strange. That's strange enough that we worship 
uh, somebody who died and then rose again and now is ascended and is sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. That makes us strange enough. Let's let that be what makes us strange. And in every other way, let's look to build common ground with those around us and then show them on their terms what they're missing. We'll go more briefly through the, the last two. Number four, present the gospel using language that connects to their story. Present the gospel using language that connects to their story. By the time we get to verse 24, Paul has been suggesting that these people have been missing the point of everything. That has a way of destabilizing you when somebody tells you that. But then Paul restabilizes them by helping them find where their story fits in the big story of everything. Um, He does that especially in verses 30 and 31 by focusing on the resurrection of Jesus as a key moment in history. He says, before the resurrection, those were the times of ignorance. But then Jesus rose from the dead. And now that we're living on this side of the resurrection, we're living in a time in which God's not overlooking ignorance anymore, but rather he's calling people everywhere to repent, which means to turn to him. That's a different way of looking at history than Paul's readers or Paul's listeners would have had. Paul's listeners would have been used to looking at history as something that goes in these big cycles, just circle after circle after circle. Paul's presenting a view of history that's a straight-line timeline that's all headed somewhere. And specifically, it's headed to this day that's coming on which God will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has appointed. That's a different way of looking at the world, but it's an example of telling the story, the big story of everything, in a way that can help someone that you're speaking to make sense of their life. Right? Um, that's wise of us to learn to tell the story in that way, by the way. You sh- we could have a 15-second version of the story, a 30-second version of the story, a two-minute version of the big story of everything that will help our friends and neighbors, our loved ones, situate themselves and find out where they are in the big story of everything. It can give purpose to their life and meaning to everything that's happened to them. Now again, some of us would like to do that, but don't feel that we're able to. We know the gospel. We know our friends' stories and what they're struggling with, but we don't know how to put the two together and how to show any kind of intersection. So we get stuck. I think that sometimes we get stuck on that because we've only learned one language of sharing the gospel. Here's what I mean. Uh, We only heard the gospel one way, and so if the way that we've learned the gospel doesn't speak to the problems our friends are facing, we don't know what to say to them. But the good news is that this Bible contains many, many, many different ways of sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. It's like a tool belt that it gives us with all these different sorts of tools, and each tool is a different way of talking about the good news of what Jesus has done uh, to reconcile us to God. So, for example... The Bible can use language of the battlefield to share the gospel, talking about how God won the victory over the power, the evil powers. The Bible can use the language of the marketplace to share the gospel, saying that Jesus purchased us um, for God. The Bible can use the language of exile to talk about the gospel, that Jesus was driven outside the camp to take the curse on our behalf. The Bible can use the language of temple that Jesus was the Passover lamb who paid the sacrifice for us. It can use the language of a law court to say that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. 
in all of those different languages or grammars of the gospel, substitution is there, right? That Jesus was in our place in all of those different ways. But all those different ways of speaking about the gospel give us the ability to have something to say to every culture that's ever existed, to every human being with every sort of need that's ever existed. Because at least one, if not more, of those gospel grammars or languages speaks to the issues of every person. There's much more we could say in this fourth point, especially that Paul doesn't budge on the resurrection, even though he's speaking to a people who think it's preposterous to think about a bodily resurrection. But in the interest of time, we'll go to our final point here. Expect a variety of responses. That's our fifth and final point. Expect a variety of responses when you take this approach. We can see it in verses 32 to 34. Um, there are three groups of people who respond to Paul. Some um, write Paul off, forget him. Some get saved, accept Christ. And others want to hear him more later. And we should expect the same three responses when we share the gospel in this way and seek to connect with the culture in this way. Not everybody's going to come to Christ. Some will write us off and think we're ridiculous, right? And that's hard, but that's reality. Others, we should expect, will come to know Jesus. And that's a great expectation to have. And a recent poll in our church showed, as you saw a few weeks ago, that we don't always believe that God is going to save people when we uh, share the gospel with them. But it's a promise from him that when we share the gospel, some of those people will get saved because it's his work, not ours. And finally, some people will want to hear us more later. They'll come back, and that seed that we planted will come back and the Lord can water it and cause it to grow later on. In all of it, God in Acts 17 is drawing people to himself. And we can trust that in our own day, God continues to draw people to himself. That was the focus in verses 26 and 27 when Paul's talking about how God has caused empires to rise and fall. God has caused people groups to move all over the globe. And he was doing it all strategically. Why? so that those people could maybe find God. Isn't that crazy to think about? The rising and falling of empires, the movement of peoples, all being orchestrated by God so that people could find him. That's the lengths to which God is willing to go to draw people to himself. God moved Paul to Athens to share this speech. God has drawn some of you here today to hear this word. We're not talking about just a God who can be known. We're talking about a God who actively wants to be known and to this day is acting so that he will be known by us, by our friends and loved ones. So our big idea today was this. Speak truth about God in the language of the culture. Paul had to work hard in Athens to make the gospel even coherent to the people that he was talking about, so that they wouldn't be hearing Yanni when he was saying Laurel. These people that Paul was talking to, they didn't have any idea who Abraham was. They'd never heard of the Ten Commandments or King David. They didn't even have shelves in their mind on which to put the good news that Paul was giving them. So before Paul could share that good news, he had to build the shelves for them. And we're living in a time and place, a day and age, that's increasingly like the Athens that Paul was addressing. Here's what I mean. Fewer and fewer of our friends and neighbors... Um, know this Bible uh, or the categories in which it talks, sin, righteousness, judgment. Fewer and fewer of our neighbors have any framework for that. 
And so the canned presentations of the gospel that were written 40 years ago, those were addressing questions that people were asking 40 years ago and don't necessarily address the questions that people are asking today. So what it means is we have to do the hard work in our own day and age with our own circle of friends and acquaintances in our own neighborhoods and our own workplaces to get to know those around us, to figure out what questions it is that they are asking. What are the beliefs they hold? What are the desires of their hearts? And in doing so, we'll find some places inevitably along the way in which their deepest yearnings intersect with God's big story of everything. It's worth the work to do so. And if I might be so bold to finish out today, I might try to do just that right now because I know that some people came here this morning, some of you came here uh, never having given your life to Jesus before. So I want to share with you that Yes, you heard some strange things probably today. You heard about a God to whom you are accountable because he made you and has done nothing but shower his intentional, careful love on you from the beginning until now. But yet you and I and everybody on earth has rebelled against that God by directing our love and affection to other things, to wealth, to achievement, to selfish pursuits, instead of to the place those loves and affections were meant to go to the God who loved us. And so maybe you've realized this morning that you're in a predicament. You have a real problem. If you've realized that this morning, that you have a bigger problem than you ever realized before, hear that based on the blood of Jesus that was shed on your behalf, you can do what this text calls you to. Two things, two action steps for you in this text. One was the call to repent. That just means turn. Turn away from your sin and turn toward the God who has been pursuing you, even pursuing you to the point where he brought you here today to hear this word. And secondly, search for him. Paul used the words that they might feel their way toward him. You can do that. Maybe by staying after today and talking to one of us about this God who has been pursuing you. But hear the promise from Scripture that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for orchestrating the times and places of empires and nations and people groups, even down to individuals that you brought here this morning. You brought us here to hear from you, to bring glory to your name. So, Lord, I pray that you would just grab each of our hearts before we leave here this morning. Those of us who already do know you, grab our hearts to give us a strong desire to share your good news with our friends in a way that's winsome and that honors them and their dignity as human beings made in your image and that seeks to build common ground um, before we share with them the points on which they might disagree. And for those who are here who don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would draw hearts to yourself, that you'd cause them to see your beauty and goodness in such a way that compels them to join the rest of us in the joy of eternal life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.